ask that uh, that you would come and be with us in maybe in a, in a very surprising way. I'm sure that uh, there are some of us in here, including uh, me, who aren't really expecting uh, for you to, to show up right now and to, and to do something profound in, in my heart or in anyone else's heart. Um, some of us have been kind of at this for a while now, and we're used to listening to people talk about the Bible. Um, we're used to kind of studying it. And so we've just kind of gotten accustomed to the normalness of it and, and just to expect maybe a, an encouraging thought or something like that, but nothing really uh, monumental to happen. So I pray that you would surprise us that way. God, and there are also people in here, no doubt, who are just trying to figure out what this is all about, and um, I pray that you would show up to them and that you would meet them in a very fresh and surprising way that they would see that that Jesus and what he did for us is far more beautiful than we ever thought. And would you, by your spirit, make that believable to us tonight? We pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I I remember, like it was yesterday, actually, when I graduated from college. It's been 13 years. And um, my my first job out of college... Uh, in that grown-up life was at Bank of Oklahoma, actually downtown Tulsa, the tallest building. I was in that building on the 14th floor. Uh, that was their oil and gas lending division, and um, I, I couldn't wait to jump in. I had interviewed for the job, you know, like in the fall of my senior year and, and gotten it. And so, uh, you know, this long period of time passed, and finally June came, and I started. And I, it was a really fun job because you, you start with a class at the bank that had what's called an accelerated career track. And it's all these people who start together, and you just are with these other 22-year-olds all day long. And so there's fun. A lot of friendship and camaraderie ended up uh, developing from that. But this really interesting thing happened. The, the very first day that I got to the bank, uh, I showed up at the, at the appointed place, the appointed time, and, and they said, okay, uh, you, all of you kind of in this class, you're going to go sit in this room, and uh, Larry Wagner and Jose Guadarrama from HR, they're going to talk to you about the benefits. This is your benefits class. And I didn't know what that meant, but I didn't want to look stupid, and so I kind of nodded. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, great, okay. And um, so, you know, I was going to sit in on this thing called the benefits class. And uh, when I did that, uh, got the seat, and Larry, who was the head of HR, he started kind of welcoming us to the BOK family and telling us what a privileged institution this was and all this kind of... Uh, but my ears perked up when he started sharing the benefits package with me. You know, he started talking about the health insurance that we were going to get. He started talking about the retirement package and how the, the company would match up to 10% of what we put in so that there are very few places that it's actual free money. That's free money. Um, so it's like, oh, man, that's awesome. He started talking to me about paid time off, that I could go take a vacation and I would just get paid like I was there. Um, he talked to us about kind of all the bank holidays, which are amazing. There's a lot of them. And we got, um, we got vision insurance. So uh, these glasses that I have on are uh, products of Bank of Oklahoma vision insurance. Now, the thing is, is that um, I don't need glasses. And so, but I had the insurance. So I went to the optometrist because I had the insurance, and they bought you a pair of frames, and they checked my eyes and said, hey, you've got great vision. I was like, well, 
But on the insurance, it says I can get free glasses, like one free pair of frames every two years. So they're like, yeah, that's true. And I said, well, just give me some window frames. So these mean nothing. They're useless. And so, uh, but they were all part of the benefits. Got me some glasses. My kids now wear them around the house. What a deal. The deal of all deals is that before I even started working, they were already telling me about all the benefits. In this passage in Romans, and up to this point, Paul has been talking about what the gospel is. He's kind of defined it. And if you know, if you're here at the beginning of the semester, he started that definition with this mound of bad news. And it was it's really bad. That mankind, uh, as the creation, has rebelled against the Creator. And because of that, there was this, this wrath, anger that God had toward us because of that rebellion. But then uh, Paul starts talking about the good news and how Jesus came to redeem us and to rescue us. And so he piles up that good news at the end of chapter 3 and last week in chapter 4. And in chapter 5 tonight, what Paul starts doing is he's kind of transitioned out of what the good news is, what the gospel is, and now he's into what the gospel means. And today he starts talking about the benefits of being justified, of being declared righteous by what Jesus has done. And he starts piling up the benefits for us. And so tonight, as we, as we look at this, I want you to be thinking about, is this good news for me? Have I ever considered all that I have in the gospel? Now, I realize that, that some of you in here aren't Christians. You're not yet Christians. You're maybe here. Maybe you chased a girl to RUF or a guy. That's how I got to RUF uh, in college. Uh, that's great. I'm glad you're here. Um, if, you're, if you're considering this and you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with me? Here's what I would suggest, that, that you treat tonight in, in this message a little bit like you uh, treat going into a store and finding a shirt or a pair of pants or something that you like, and you try them on, and you kind of feel them out and see how it fits, and then you decide if you want to buy them or not. You may walk around the store, go look in the mirrors or whatever, or ask a friend. I'm going to encourage you to, to try on the benefits of the gospel. Ask yourself if I believed this, if this were true for me, what would that mean for my life? How would that impact my day-to-day? What would that say about the way that I live? And then, look, if you want to buy it, buy it. If you don't, you can take it off. There's no pressure there for you. But consider what's held out for you in the gospel. Let me read from Romans chapter 4, sorry, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's Word. There's three things I want us to see tonight from this passage, three benefits that are offered to us in the gospel that Paul uh, picks up here. The first is this, a certain peace, that there is a certain and sure peace that comes to us. Secondly, a certain love, and thirdly, a certain hope. So let's look at a certain peace. As Paul starts kind of unpacking the benefits for those who have been justified through faith in Jesus, right out of the gate right there in verse 1, if you want to look at it, he makes this huge claim that we have peace with God. That we actually have peace with God. Now again, this may be your first week to come, which is fine. You can go back and listen to the others on podcasts. You don't have to. But that may help understand here. For those of you who have been here, you remember that for like four weeks, it was bad news. It was God is angry because of this. And he's rightfully angry. And this is what that means, and this is the way that plays out in our life, that we're doing things uh, to ourselves and to others which are kind of uh, moving toward destruction and degradation of society and of our lives and our bodies. And so he's saying that's the bad news, and it was bad. And we were at enmity with God. We were not reconciled. We were enemies, as Paul goes on to say. And so when he starts out right here in in chapter 5 and just comes out of the gate and says, we now have peace with God. That is like a seismic shift in the spiritual landscape of Romans. He's saying there is now no more animosity. There is no more hostility when God looks at humankind, when he looks at those who are in Christ. Zero enmity. This idea of of kind of looking at the bad news and saying, look how bad this was, and now look at the good news. This is the heart of every motivational speaker ever. Think about it. Um, Whether that person was maybe had some kind of terrible home life growing up that led to these circumstances and choices they made, um, or whether that person maybe was an addict of some sort, or whether that person uh, came home from the war and their life was uh, ravaged either physically or mentally or something, and and then something happened, some sort of hope came into their life, or some person came in, or some... Uh, a miracle drug came in and got them back on track. Or maybe they, they, they met Jesus, right? This is like all the powerful testimonies you've, uh, you've heard. Something happens, and then they're kind of the story is, now look at my life. And hopefully they're not just bragging about, look how awesome I am. Hopefully it's, man, this amazing thing has happened, and they usually turn and say, and you can do that too. That can be true for you, right? And they offer some sort of, of hook for you. Paul is saying, look at how bad it was. And now consider and look at how good this is. This sort of narrative and plotline is also at the heart of like 90% of all popular films ever made. 
Think about romantic comedies for a second. They're all the same. Um, it starts out in a peaceful, serene setting of some sort, like a park with leaves falling, or there's a fountain, and there's uh, a guy and a girl or whatever, and, um, and they come together and they stumble upon each other, and this love starts to bud and, and erupt sometimes. And, you know, everything's great, and then everything's not great. Like, they found out that she slept with his roommate or, you know, something, and everything goes downhill. It's like, oh, no. Uh, And then some sort of reconciliation takes place, and then they live happily ever after. It's been so bad, but look, it's so good now. Uh, Do you know the movie Inside Out? If you shake your head no, don't do that. Just go see it and shake your head yes next week. It's amazing. Um, Think about Inside Out. Riley, the little girl who's kind of the, the show is centered around, she has this great life in the Midwest, in Nebraska, and uh, she's on an ice hockey team, and it's Nebraska. Yes, yeah. Um, and she's on this ice hockey team, and she just she's a normal kid and has lots of friends and all that. Her dad gets transferred to San Francisco, uh, the interruption, right, and it just goes downhill quick. It spirals. Her friends lose her, and so the whole story is this picture of her from the inside and what's going on. And then this unlikely hero emerges, right? Sadness. You know, Joy is there doing her thing, like freaking out. But sadness emerges as this hero. And then in the end, Riley's life is, is mature. She, she's a step ahead, and she's been through this hard time. But look where she is now. The reason that we love those stories, the reason that the speakers are motivating, the reason that we'll watch romantic comedies, even though that plot line is as predictable as the sun, It's because there's something very deep and true about that story. It's the story at the fabric of creation. It's God's story and what he's doing to redeem the world. Let me suggest this. Let me ask this. What is it about this idea of peace with God that Paul is so enthralled with? And here's what it is. Because if you know anything about Paul's life, and maybe you don't, but if you do, you know that it wasn't peaceful. At all. I mean, he was beaten because he trusted in Jesus and followed him and proclaimed the gospel. He was um, shipwrecked, which wasn't like his fault necessarily, but he was on the way to go somewhere and counting the costs, and he shipwrecked. I mean, he was like severely persecuted, imprisoned, all this stuff. So his wasn't a cushy life. So why is he so excited about this peace with God? Here's why, y'all is that there is such thing as objective peace with God. You know what I mean? That that peace with God can be objectively true for you, even if you're not subjectively experiencing the peace of God. That you can have the peace, peace with God objectively. It's true because of what Jesus has done. Even if in the details and the circumstances of your life, you do not feel peace Right now. And y'all, the reason that we struggle with this is something that a a British, he was a medical doctor, um, ended up going to seminary and becoming a pastor, a guy named Dr. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones. He picked up on this and writes about it in his book called Spiritual Depression. And he says so much of the Christian life and why we struggle in it is because we listen to ourselves. In other words, we listen to our experiences and our kind of emotional reactions to those experiences. We listen to ourselves so much of the time. And he suggests what we need to do is talk to ourselves. That when life sucks, when your friends are leaving, 
When the boyfriend breaks up, when your parents are splitting up, when you don't get the grade that you studied for so hard, when you don't get into grad school, when any number of things happen, instead of just listening to kind of life and its circumstances and how you're living through that and experiencing that, he says we've got to stop and start speaking back and saying true things to us. Things like, this failure I experienced doesn't mean I'm a failure. Just because she left me or broke up with me, that doesn't mean that I'll never be loved again. Just because I didn't get into grad school, that doesn't mean my life is going to be worthless. God loves me. And that matters. That matters more than everything. The details of how my life's going to work out, that's yet to be seen. But the tr- there are true things that we can say to ourselves. Twice a year... I go to, to staff training with RUF, and it's just a time when all the campus ministers from around the country come together. And uh, during that, that week-long time, it's like a Monday morning through Friday afternoon, uh, so for four or five days, I don't feel much like a dad because my kids aren't there. I don't have the responsibilities. They're not waking me up in the morning. Uh, we're not having to make them meals. And I'm, like, I don't feel like a dad because they're not there. I call my wife, and she feels like mom times two. Um, but for that time, I don't feel like a dad. Like my present experience isn't that I'm a dad right then. But y'all, I'm a dad. Like even though my life in those moments kind of screams at me, like, man, this is amazing. I'm single again. Woo, stay up late, go hang out with my friends. Like the reality is I'm a dad. And if I go and make those choices or whatever, like it impacts things. The reality is, is that you are, if you're in Christ, you have peace with God. Even if your present life says you don't have the peace of God. If you're in this room and you've, um, and you've ever seriously considered or wrestled with the idea of trusting God or believing in Jesus, whatever you want to call it, then at some point you've asked the question, how can I know that I'm saved? I mean, how can I know that I know that I have peace with God? And what I want to tell you is, if the way you go about trying to answer that question has anything to do with you, if you start looking at the circumstances of your life, good or bad, right? Maybe it's that you start thinking about how you just uh, went and been shopped and spent $300 or $100 on stuff you really didn't need, but you, you did that because you were sad and you wanted to feel better. You start looking at stuff like that. Or you start thinking about all the stuff you looked at last night or this afternoon online. Or you think about how you've not, like you've kind of been avoiding that person who really annoys you, but you know that it really means something to them if you talk to them. Or you think about those comments you made. If you start looking at that stuff, you're going to feel incredibly insecure. And you're going to, be, you're going to wonder, oh gosh, I don't, my life doesn't really look like I'm saved or that I'm right with God. Or conversely, if you look at your life and you're killing it, Right, you worked at Canada Cup last summer um, for all all three terms or both terms. Like you did it, you worked hard, and you had a, you had seven quiet times a week. Oh my gosh! Uh, you uh, even on your day off, you went to church. Like you did it. You went on a mission trip last summer. You kind of look at the good details of your life and how you're not drinking, or at least not drinking as much as they are, or you're not sleeping around, or you're not doing quite all the way. Like you start looking at that and, and welling up with pride. And what happens when you blow it? If you start answering the question, how can I know that I'm saved, at either one of those extremes, you will be insecure. But Paul says there's a different way to answer that question. You don't think about you. 
you look objectively at what Jesus has done for you. The grounding hope and reality of your righteous standing before God, Paul says you can stand before Him, is that you stand in grace. It had nothing to do with you. If you want to step away from your experience of you, consider that your salvation has nothing to do with you. The only thing you brought to the table was your need. God's not that impressed with you, but He loves you. Which is actually our second point tonight. Paul talks about a certain love that we can have with God. See how he develops this. Look at verse 5. He starts right there, and he starts by saying, We can have hope, and we're going to talk about that in a second, uh, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That, that sounds kind of ethereal. What does that mean? Here's what he's saying is that if you trust in Christ, if, if you have received what he did at the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and in his resurrection you're saying, then I have new life. He's got new life. I've got new life. If that becomes your story, then the Holy Spirit is in you right now. It's not something that happens later after you pray that other prayer and then you start doing all these crazy things. Like, that's not true. We can talk about it later if you want to. I'm pretty confident. I try not to be arrogant about that. I have a conviction about that. If your experience is different, I'd be happy to talk about it. Sorry. Um, but if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And friends, if you've ever had even a fleeting moment in your life where you've thought, I think God loves me. Against all, all hopes, against all reality of how I feel, I really do feel the love of God. That's because the Holy Spirit is inside of you telling you that God loves you. The only way that, that spiritually dead people like us, that's what we bring to the table, is, is spiritual death. The only way that we can experience and hear the love of God is if the Holy Spirit is giving us life. If, if He's giving our ears, our, our heart, ears to hear it. So the Holy Spirit is God's gift of love to us. Think about um, uh, the way that Paul kind of develops this is... Uh, an argument, a thing that's called the argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay? Let me tell you how this works in, in real life, then we'll look at what he does. I love you guys. Okay? Some of you, I just met you, and you're like, don't be fake. Uh, okay. Um, but I love you. I, I love TU students. I love everyone that I get to meet and talk to. Um, I realize I'm closer with some of you than others and all that. I love RUF students at TU. I love TU students. I love my children. Okay? You rightly understand that there's a difference there. And then what if I love my, I say I love my wife? Um, you realize that, that there's even a difference between the love I have for my wife. It's different than the love I have for my kids. Okay? So you understand that there's this argument and this, this thing that goes from lesser to greater, talking about love. When Paul looks at this passage, he starts talking about the love of God. He starts saying, look... You know, occasionally you might have someone who lays down their life for a righteous person or a good person, perhaps. Yeah? And then he starts to say, but, but let me tell you something. God's love is greater than that. That he didn't just lay down his life for a friend or a righteous or good person. The extent and the quality of God's love is that he laid it down for his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, basically, like, while we were still God's enemies, he justified us. And then he doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say, 
how much more than having been justified, right? Look down, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look down in, uh, in verse 10. He says, us being sinners that were, were enemies with God, but, but it gets even better. How much more now that we are reconciled, or what that means is the relationship is fully restored, that we are adopted, we are His children. He can't love us anymore. How much better is that? If God loved His enemies, how much more does He love us as His children? What's most valuable to you? What's, what's that thing, that possession, that it just holds like infinite worth to you? It means everything. Maybe it came from a grandparent, or maybe it was from a best friend, or maybe it was from someone that, that you've been close to, and maybe that person passed away or something, so the significance of it is just is, is huge. So it's something very valuable to you. Think about what that would take to give it to someone else. I mean, it would have to be something that makes sense and would be valuable to them. But, you know, for you to do that, like, you would have to count that person worthy of receiving it. You would have to love them, and they would, they would um, appreciate it. Friends, sometimes we struggle with whether God loves us or not. And what Paul and all the rest of the Bible, what it's trying to do is to basically, like, wave the arms, flashing lights, and say... But look at what He's done. He already gave Jesus. He emptied Himself of all but love. What else, what else do we want from God? Like, he, He's already said, I cleared my bank account. I gave you what was most valuable to me. What more, what more do you want? But the truth is, we want lots of things. We want a bigger house. We want better friends. We want all these things. And... And we, when God doesn't give those as we ask, and it's fine to ask, sometimes He does, but when He doesn't, we, we start wondering, like, is He good? Does he, does he really love me? I don't have the thing that I've told Him I wanted. But look, what if God's love isn't so much in Him dispensing His blessings to our life in very tangible ways? What if God's love is a little more covert? What's a, what if it's a little more masked than that? What if, and I'm just going to use one example, what if God's love for you looked like this? Him moving in the hearts of 200, 250 people to give a little bit of money every month and some churches to give some money every month so that RUF could exist at the University of Tulsa. What if God's love looked like that and so that, so that I and, and me and Joey and Kira can be here and, and talk to you guys about God's love and about how much He cares for you. And what if God's love is so deep and so profound and mysterious that He worked in the lives of some of your friends to have them invite you to come tonight or any other night? And so you're here. And what if you're sitting there and you're hearing this idea and this message that God actually loves me in spite of me? What if God's love is, is so intricately woven into the fabric of just our everyday lives that we miss it? God's love for us is certain. We can't unearn it because it's wrapped up in Jesus. And Jesus is certain. And that leads finally not to this certain hope that Paul starts talking about. 
Verse 2, he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Interestingly, that word rejoice, which shows up three times in this passage, is the exact same word that Paul used at the end of chapter 3. It's the same word as boast. And it can be translated both ways. And he translated it boast in chapter 3 where he's saying, look... Jesus died for you, and the gospel of the good news is that um, it, it doesn't have anything to do with your good works, because you're not good. And so you can't boast in yourself. No one can boast about anything. The bad news levels us. We, we don't have a leg to stand on. And so he's coming in now, he's saying, you can't boast in yourself, but you do have something to boast in, to rejoice in, and it is this. The hope of the glory of God. Now what does that mean? In the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, when it uses this word hope, it's different than how we think about hope. We think about hope in terms of like, you know, I, uh, I hope that when I go to CC's Buffet and eat pizza, it's going to be good. It's like a hope against all odds, right? Or I hope that I go to McDonald's and don't walk away just feeling like sludgy and like I've just done something terrible. Right? You, you're kind of up against uh, the, the laws of the universe at that point. Or it's even not like this hopeful optimism about something that might be like, oh man, I hope Jacob Hunter asks me out. He's such a babe. Like, oh gosh. For real though. Uh, or or I, I hope she says yes to me when I ask her to go get coffee. Like, it's not this like optimistic joy butterfly thing. Biblical New Testament hope is a sure, it's a sure reality of a certain future. It is basing real, uh, real life, giving real life emotion and energy into something that you know is coming. It has to do with a certain future, the sure coming of certain things that I put up there. Look, if hope is just a sense of joyous optimism for life, then what is the thing, sorry, if hope is more than just a sense of joyous optimism for life, then what is this thing that Paul is actually latching the hope to? What says the glory of God? What does that mean? That means, and Paul very much understands this, that one day, someday, God is going to make things right. That one day, someday, this world's not going to be the way it is now. People are not going to die in the way that they die. Cancer is not going to be a thing. Infighting won't be a thing. Tribalism, racism, classism, injustice, all the isms, uh, murder, strife, envy, hatred, cheating, that won't exist in this world to come. And that's called glory. And that's called glory. And it's anchored in who God is. It's certain. He promised that it's going to happen. Just like He promised that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He did. And so we can have equal certainty and confidence and hope in this. Look, that world that you long for, that when it's 72 degrees outside and the, the wind's just blowing right and the leaves are beautiful and you look at the sunset and part of you just for a moment feels like all is right. Or when you go to a really moving concert and it hits its climax and they just nail it. 
or when you're in a movie that captures your imagination or or you're looking at a painting, art tends to do this. It tends to draw out this stuff out in us. Or maybe you're just with a good friend and the conversation is, is deeply moving and it's just got you and you're thinking, man, this is good. Or maybe you've been loved in such a way by a parent or maybe romantically by someone and you just think, man, this is, this is a selfless love. This is pure. All of those things that your heart longs for and latches onto, that stuff is anchored in the sure and certain glory that is coming. And friends, if you're in Christ, you can hope in that, not in the way you hope in CC's, not in the way you hope in Jacob Hunter. You can hope in that with absolute certainty and clarity. It's coming. The Holy Spirit is the down payment in your heart of that life that is to come. And that peace which now can exist between you and God will open up into an eternity of deep joy. Let me talk for just a second as we finish about a few ways uh, that this matters for you. Paul says that if this hope begins to be true for you, that, that your future is certain, but he says something crazy. He says you can even rejoice in your sufferings. You can rejoice when your life sucks. How? Because he kind of starts spelling it out. He said, look, your suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That suffering in the gospel isn't meaningless. Because look at Jesus. He suffered, but it had tremendous meaning. So when you suffer in Christ, your suffering takes on meaning as well. But not just like the stuff that happens for you. Think about this, and this is what I want us to consider. It means... That you can willfully enter into suffering and take tremendous risks in this life. Because, y'all, this is the short part. Eternity is the long part. And so what's the worst that's going to happen to you? You move into an underprivileged neighborhood, your house gets broken into, okay, you lose your stuff. Jesus has promised you glory and riches and everything your heart ever wanted. This is the short part. You move into an underprivileged neighborhood, you get shot, you die. You get there quicker. Like, it's the real short part. Right? Paul says to to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's what that means. It means you can move across the country... And, and take a job that isn't making as much money because it actually has meaning to it. And your parents are back here saying, don't do that, that's stupid. And you take a risk for Jesus. It may mean that, that you take an hour out of your schedule and love that person who's really hard to love. That's suffering. Suffering. Because that person needs to be dignified. They need their dignity affirmed. They matter. Maybe they have social anxiety. Maybe they have... Um, uh, trouble with self-esteem, and they just are always talking about how they hate themselves and all that. That's hard, y'all. It is. They need you to love them. Step into that. You can risk that. This is the short part. So what? You lose an afternoon. So what? You make a B on a test. You just gave life to that person. That matters. It means instead of trying to numb the pain caused through life and then uh, by substances or whatever your thing is that you're doing that with, It means that you can look at suffering square in the eyes and say, okay, I can endure this because I'm united to Jesus and my my hope is certain it's coming. I can get through this. 
Y'all, only in Christ do the tangible benefits and enjoyments of this life serve as just a foretaste of forever. And only in Christ do the sufferings of this life pale in comparison to what's coming. You can take the goods of the gospel and turn them into the good of the world. Jim Elliott, who's a hero of mine, a missionary, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Give your life. You can't keep it anyway. Gain what, you, what you'll never lose. Certain hope of the gospel. Let's pray together.